Welcome to this special edition of Your Week with St. Luke's. We are talking about the vision and St. Luke's history. And we are so excited because we are joined today by two amazing people that everyone loves, our founding pastor of St. Luke's, Reverend Jim Harnish, and the second lead pastor of St. Luke's for, I think, the longest period of lead pastorship, <laughs> Reverend Dr. Bill Bard. I just made that word up, but that's all right. We can do that when we're doing podcasts. So welcome, gentlemen. I'm glad you've joined us today. Great to be with you, Jen. Yeah, Jen. So tell us, first of all, Jim, how long were you appointed to St. Luke's? What years? I came in 79 and we left in 92, which added up to 13 years. Wow. And Bill? I followed Jim in 92 and I think I retired in 2015. Um, so I want to talk, I've been looking up a lot of the history. I did that for the very beginning of the vision series, 23 and me at the beginning of the year <clears throat> to kind of set in who we are and, and where we're going. And as we reveal the vision that the congregation created in February, um, I want to kind of go back to sort of some foundational things. And, and one of the things that I thought was interesting was the land was actually purchased like 20 years before you were appointed, Jim. You know, I didn't realize it had been that far back until I read your information. Uh, yeah, that's pretty amazing. When you imagine that there were nothing, there was nothing but orange groves out there at that time. I thought it had been purchased more like 10 or 15 years before we got there. Mm-hmm. Pretty amazing. Yeah, when, so- when I saw that, um, before I ever came to St. Luke's, back in like 70, uh, probably about 71, um, we I was at Emory in undergraduate, and we were visiting all the incoming freshmen. And there was this one guy who lived in Windermere. So I came from St. Pete over, got off I-4 and thought I was like in the middle of absolute nowhere. And wow. his little house, it's a little uh, two bedroom, one bath house. It looks like it's still right on the lake uh, when you go into Windermere. I know right where I visited him. Um, but I remember that long trip through uh, all the orange groves uh, to this little house in Windermere, which Windermere then was just, you know, fish camp houses and all the way back to St. Pete. And I thought, how did that guy ever find Emory? <laughs> That's amazing. So, so what was the impetus for you to be appointed here, Jim? That's a great question. Uh, <laughs> the call came. Um, I had never even heard of Windermere. I had to look it up on the map. And, um, the at any rate, the district had determined that it was time to move ahead. There had been a sign on the property for a long time, but no action. And then that fall of 78 was when uh, the district committee decided it was time to move and do something. And they uh, did this door-to-door knocking on doors out there so that when I got there, there was already uh, Phil Torrance, marvelous retired guy, mm-hmm. uh, 
had started services. There were about a dozen folks. And then I had this pile of cards, most of which, as I started following up on, people had clearly said, put my name down, goodbye. And they were gone. <laughs> but um, out of that pile of cards came people like uh, Neil and Bonnie James mm -hmm. and um, uh, Linda and Charlie were there the very beginning and uh, you know others that a uh, couple of them that, that were here and then moved away uh, anyway we started that's what started so I so, remember I remember when Jim started I really didn't know Jim but um it this I don't know whether the the church had gone into a lull about new church planting or what but um his his work um in Windermere was was getting a lot of coverage in the conference you know they showed this picture of him preaching on the back of a you know back of the, a fire engine and firehouse and, and there's a lot of excitement about this new church start I remember that for sure which was actually just a, a heavy load of pressure Gene West the DS kept saying ah oh, that church it's gonna go it's gonna fail yeah <laughs> it's gonna yeah. And when it wasn't growing and the the numbers were just this little handful of folk, suddenly um, people from the district telling me how great this church was going to be was not exactly encouraging. It was mm -hmm. like water to a drowning man. Uh, I had the same experience when the bishop sent me to First Methodist downtown Miami. And that had in the 80s, Miami in the 80s, imagine. And, and um uh, it was on the cover of Time magazine with a picture of the skyline. It said Meredith, uh, Miami, Paradise Lost. <laughs> so I heard the same thing. Oh, you're going to go down there and the church is going to grow like crazy. And, you know, just wait till you see what happens in downtown Miami. And then it didn't. Yeah. Uh, same like you, Jim. Yeah. Yeah. It took a while. Yeah. So, so when, you know, we've talked about this before, the three of us, kind of the, the St. Luke's DNA and, and, and really what your team, because of course, when I say you in this conversation, it's always plural because both of you are collaborative and, 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 it, and, and, and it's really been lay ministry driven, I think, you know, since lay people were a part of it, but what did you start? I mean, you were the first person, Jim. So like, what was your kind of like, um, we need to start a church that is reflective of based in, and what were those key things that you and those first 99 people thought? Yeah. Um, and I've gone back and thought about that. One of it clearly was I, I came with a very clear conviction that just transferring Methodists from one congregation to another was no net growth for the kingdom of God. Mm -hmm. And that we were primarily here to reach people who were unchurched. I mean, that was the term that we used uh, back there in church growth circles, but that that we were here to reach people who didn't yet know Christ or who had some Christian experience in their past and but that were outside the church. And mm -hmm. so that was really, really the heart of um and now we we would take anybody. So <laughs> if people wanted to transfer, we were gonna take them. But, but we really out uh, 
trying to look for people that that uh, were not engaged anywhere in the church. And I will say, since you under, underscore in the material, the way the culture has changed, mm -hmm. I'm deeply aware in the whole of ministry that Bill and I came into ministry when there was still the residual, yeah, the Christian sort of culture or mm -hmm. the, church, the church culture. Mm -hmm. so, so out there in the neighborhoods where I started knocking on doors, which you wouldn't do these days either, but uh, as I went out knocking door to door, there were people out there who, oh yeah, um, sure, I've heard of a Methodist church or that were looking for a church or had a positive experience. Uh, the church had a different role. And I never had any question that this was going to be a United Methodist Church, period. Right. Um, so I wasn't inviting people to some vague Christianity. I was saying, would you like to be a part of a new United Methodist Church? Mm -hmm. and, um, so I think that that's in there. Well, I'm, I'm going to uh, help answer Jim's question yeah. on his behalf from what I found when I came. Um, Jim used to joke that uh, St. Luke's did open door evangelism. They opened the door and there were all the people waiting to come in. <laughs> um, that is self-deprecating humor because that just doesn't happen. Right. Um, I know it didn't just happen that people were thronging the doors to get in. The, the fact that we both served the majority of our ministry during a great time of boomers returning and that kind of thing. In some ways, it was the case, of course, in Christmas Eve and Easter. But um, it had to be what Jim was communicating that this church was going to be, that, that people came. And I think one of the things that always impresses me, um, that I used to always take people to see, was when they built that sanctuary, multi-use building, and yep. put the cross outside the window. Um, that's that that is so significant, but it because it communicates our work is outside of this building. You know, I I always said that St. Luke's was a warehouse uh, for ministry. It's it's it's, and I had to start saying that because there was so much junk in the hallways all the time. So I had to say something that gave my OCD some comfort. But we really are a warehouse for ministry. Our work is in the world. Um, mm -hmm the people we want to reach in the world, the kind of transformational uh, ministry we want to do is in the world. It's always outside the window. And um, when a church starts by putting its cross outside where yeah. you can see it, uh, it, it, even if it, it isn't called to mind all the time, it's imprinting in the mind of the believers they worship that we need to be there, not just here. Right. It was such a reflection that we still, I mean, I, I have it, you know, we talked, Bill, 2007, eight, I guess it was 2008 before the housing crisis, when we walked church council out there and we were like, okay, this is our roots. This is our heritage. We're going to go through this crisis and we're going to, we're going to be there to help people. We're going to spend all our money helping people. And it was I, pivotal. I think one of the things that's been great about the three of us as leaders is it's not always the case in the United Methodist Church that a new leader comes and values the past, uh, affirms it, builds on it, 
is comfortable enough in her, his own skin to say, wow, we owe this to whoever right. came before us. And part of the consistency of who we've been as a congregation has been that um, we have always tried to build on what we what we have had started. So there's a continuum and there's not this horrible change that churches go through where they switch back and forth and they lose who they are and they lose people. You know, so I, I think, I think that's a gift that Jim uh, gave us in the beginning. Yeah. But I would say it's a gift <clears throat> that we keep giving him and others as we go back to value it. Right. Jim Atchison, one of our leaders here, always says it's a every time we do a new vision, a strategic vision, it's an it's an evolution, not a revolution, because mm -hmm. because we want it to be an evolution of who we are, which is which is one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to you all, because we could go through the history and talk about, you know, how fast the church grew attendance wise or buildings that we built and things like that. But there are pivotal just DNA grounded things that you all did that I think speak into who we are and what we're trying to do today, as Bill talked about. Like, for instance, um, one of the things that Jim, I, I was looking at the history. I mean, you had Reverend Peter Story, you had Supreme Court Justice Blackman come. I mean, you picked people to be in the pulpit that were speaking to what was going on in the world. What, what, why? And 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 tell me what the reaction was to those to those speakers that you had or those guest people that you had. Well, of course, that was later down the road too. Right. But I, I think um, it's a great question. I think part of it was if we're going to reach these people who are not inside the church. What's going on out there? Mm -hmm. How are we in touch with them? And when you said that, I uh, really am a, a small but significant pivotal moment was early on when uh, the Dr. Phillips Elementary was the only elementary school in the area serving Bay Hill, Sand Lake Hills, Orange Tree, that area pretty comfortable place. And the school district wanted to bus kids from Tangelo Park into that school, oh. um, which is a totally different demographic. Right. And the neighborhood was very tense about that whole thing. And I don't remember that we as a church sort of, I really spoke directly to it, well, I, yes, I did. I mean, I, I'm sure that I mentioned it in a sermon about being more broadly inclusive, because as much as I fully love and felt comfortable for the most part in the culture in which we were based, there were parts of me that were always a little uncomfortable with it. Mm. And um, and that was a test case. What these kids coming from Tangelo Park. I mean, there were folks in the neighborhood who tried to get the school board to stop that and not do that. And I think that was an important place for, for us in the church. We said, this is okay. Uh, in fact, one of those guys 
uh, was a uh, oh friend of my daughter's, now Broadway star. Uh, Wayne Brady. Wayne Brady, yeah. One of the one of those kids was Wayne Brady. Wow. Um, so I think you know I think there were small moments along the way. Mm -hmm. Said, yeah, uh, we're going to be this way, not this way. <laughs> what was that like for you to Me? make this? Yeah, yeah, for you. You said you were uncomfortable. Like, talk about that. I like people to like me. <laughs> <laughs> it's well, the curse of pastoral ministry. I know, I know. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> I don't, I remember some uncomfortable conversations, mm -hmm. but by the, you know, we were still pretty small at that time. Mm -hmm. So it was a pretty common sense of spirit for the most part. Uh, but uh, it just seemed like the right thing to do. I think that's too because we were you were so grounded. You all were so grounded in our Wesleyan heritage. This is who we are: personal holiness, social holiness, Saint Luke's, the Gospel of Luke, and who it was, and that whole idea that we're here for the people who aren't here yet. Mm -hmm. And and I think that's so pivotal. If you look, you started a family resource center. You know, you started arts and innovation and worship because there were arts people that needed to be reached. And what is the creative ways to do that? But then also. So yes, in social justice ways, there are things going on around us in the culture and the church has a place in it. And, and that doesn't always mean as, as I've talked to some people, poking people in the eye, but moving, moving people towards more gospel living, more kingdom of God living. Mm -hmm. Bill, what was that for you? What were some of those pivotal moments for you? Well, <clears throat> my, um, no, let's say both Jim and I didn't want to move in 1992. He wanted to stay at St. Luke's. I wanted to stay at First Church Miami. <clears throat> now, he'd been longer, 13 years. I was in my seventh year, and that's about just a time where you, you yeah. know, there's a pivotal time in seven years. But because of the lack of many churches uh, with faith groups in downtown Miami, I had sort of a high profile. But my ministry experience had been inner city church in Atlanta and then uh, Miami uh, under challenging situations where um we had lots of great ideas in terms of social ministry, but no money. Mm. I saw what could happen at St. Luke's where you connected people with not only economic resources, but voices that spoke to power or had a voice already at a table of decision makers. When you could connect that with uh, social need or, or some kind of systemic change. Um, that's actually how I got Lynette Fields to come. You know, I couldn't, you know, Lynette was dead set. She wasn't going to come to a wealthy suburban congregation. That wasn't where her head was. And I had to say, Lynette, think what you could do with money and power. So um, uh, that is, that's a real key, I think, to what we've been able to do. Um, because we didn't, we didn't allow people to be, I think, to be settled in complacency of, of their, of their place, you know? Right. So I've always been one who, looked at ministry as gap filling. I think all three of us do. Yeah. Um, uh, let's look at a place where people are falling through whatever it is and try to, to try to do some catching and lifting and changing. Mm -hmm. 
So there's question in the history timeline, and Bill brought this up in an email, and I was I was questioning too. There was a there was an AIDS awareness clinic that was held or workshop that was held. Was that with you, Jim? Or was that in the midst of the transition? Because that then led to serenades and working with Centaur and working with the Howard Phillips Foundation. And I was I was coming out of Miami where um uh you know there were all these theories about how it was transmitted, who got it, and it landed uh, on the Haitian community huh. in Belle Glade, um, you know, in, in central South Florida. And so where there was so much fear and worry, uh, First First Methodist, we, we went to Belle Glade and engaged with, uh, the Methodist churches didn't want us there, <laughs> they didn't, weren't actually happy that we'd come, but we we did engage with some um, AIDS uh, work um, among uh, what seemed to be at the time the uh, population that was most affected. So I had that already in my heart when I when I came, you know, and that was related, obviously, not just to the illness that was a, a pandemic in nature, especially through Africa, but specifically with the gay community. And so that that took um, gaps and made them wider because there was just a gap of of non non um majority sexuality but then you also had this fear of 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 the the disease itself and so we found of course there's so such a growing such a growing gay population anyway in in central florida um especially because of our entertainment community and the people who end up there and so it it just seemed like something that we needed to address. And um, uh, I, I sort of um, felt myself very much compelled to be a voice for that um, in the community. And we wanted to be not only somewhat of a prophetic voice, but also a healing voice, mm. which is what Serenades was doing with supporting, right. um, you know, the organization that was really, Centaur was really reaching out to people. And you know, surprisingly, <clears throat> there was there was really not a lot of pushback from St. Lucas. I think it's because, um, you know, there's there's a couple of ways you can affect change. One is the prophetic way, which which it, it has its its own power, but leaves a lot of people, you know, um, right. winners and losers, or you know, you know, just in or out. And there's the pastoral way. And of course, you know, that's my way because all the people please are like Jim. Uh, and it takes longer, but you you can move a whole congregation, you know. The one thing I remember is the gay rights ordinance. I was the <clears throat> the only mainline pastor um, that had was supporting it. And um, I was interviewed by the Orlando Sentinel. And I said, now, is there going to be anybody else in this article? Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Well, the article came out on a Sunday morning and I was the only one. So I was like the lone voice out there. And so there was some stuff, but, you know, luckily it was uh, just the beginning days of email. So I got this one email from a church member who said, you have embarrassed me for my church. And I took the time to write back and explain why this was a part of who we were. And what we, and I got an answer back that said, I'm I'm no longer embarrassed. I'm humbled. Wow. So um, I think that uh, 
being very clear about how what you do is related to the gospel and to the life of Christ and the witness we need to make, it makes it makes it difficult for people to not really look seriously at who they are and how they view their discipleship and not land in some places that are uncomfortable for them, but necessary. So let's talk about the, oh, go ahead, Jim. Go ahead. I was just gonna say, the other thing that occurs to me there is it is all about location, location, location. Mm. And I used to say, I had really clear answers on all of the questions around sexuality until I started meeting people. Mm. And that happened at, at St. Luke's. I mean, I would say to folks, you know, you, you can't be hanging around the uh, the uh, Disney and not get to know a bunch of gay people. Right, right. And the relationships. And so I think the, the, the location is critically important. And that is, I mean, I really loved the location. Right. So did you, I mean, I had no problem just loving uh, being there and being connected to the parks. And I wasn't quite as comfortable being connected to what was then Martin Marietta building. I don't know what all they built down there, but but I received those folks into the church. But I loved that location. And I think people knew that. And yeah, I, I want to, I Jim needs to go back to that. I didn't have to deal with any of that. He had he'd taken care of that by the time I got there. But um, mm -hmm. during the Iraq war and um, uh, uh, Jim, you made some very courageous statements and preached some very uh, powerful sermons uh, about that. So I understand from the people who didn't like them, who told me about them when I came. <laughs> Talk about that, Jim. Yeah. What does it mean to be that voice in this area that is, sort of the trifecta of both entertainment, but also kind of this military, you know, support system and mm -hmm. tourism. It's a very, very interesting location to live and to do ministry in. So so what was that like? Well, I mean, I, yes, I think we all agree. Fundamentally, it is, I want those folks to know that I love them or that yeah. I'm doing my best to love them. Mm -hmm. I may disagree, but I'm going to try to respect and love you. Uh, but that one, yeah. When, Jen, you said plural you, I have been doing some personal growth and thinking about peace and nonviolence and really uh, moving in the direction of pacifism, although I can't be purely that, but moving. The, I've been reading, doing, and we had, a, I gathered together a, a bunch of folks who were hungry pacifists. I mean, uh, Chris Crotty was in that group, and huh. Wells, and um, uh, Bill and Carmen Cunningham, and uh, there were, I don't know, eight or nine of us, maybe, uh, that, that started reading books on nonviolence, and that was already going on when the war happened and how would we respond? And that group put together a, a, a prayer service the night, the night that they uh, 
It was the Gulf War, wasn't it? I was Mr. I said it was the Gulf War. The Gulf War. Uh, they called it shock and awe. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, and we had this really beautiful evening worship. And then I did preach as clearly as I could. Um, but it was the group that sustained that. Yeah, that would that was decisive. Uh, and you always have people who leave you in moments yeah. like that. Um, that's how, what happened at Hyde Park after 9-11. Um, the Sunday after 9-11, we had Easter morning attendance. And the next week, not so much. <laughs> well, you know, what I always used to tell people is um, even though I, I, I was gentle in my admonitions and my challenges, I think, um, it would upset people, of course. And I would say, I don't want you to get out of your car with your stomach in a knot, worrying about what you're going to hear when you come in. You need to find a place where you can enter joyfully. But the second part of that is if you're willing to stay with your discomfort, you just might find that um, Christ is speaking to you in a way you hadn't expected. Not that I'm the voice of Christ, but you know. <laughs> right. That's good. <laughs> well, and it's interesting because when you look at things, you know, when you look back, do you ever look back and go, man, gosh we 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 should have done this or we should have said this or is there any you know maybe regrets not a part i don't i don't like the word regret because you do the best as bill taught me you do the best and make the best decisions with the information you have at the time that's right which has been a healing thing for me to learn <laughs> that's I right have, I, I totally agree with that we did the best that we knew how to do in that moment mm -hmm. And partly this might reflect on what I said earlier about the moment in the culture that people were willing to join the church. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was later when I was at Hyde Park that we got much more serious about making disciples. Yeah, right. And I would say that in um, across the years, I did a really good job of making a lot of church members. Uh, where I can name people that looking back now, if I had to do over again, I could wish that I had moved them into a deeper place of discipleship. I think we all have that. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. There, yeah. there is the, there's been that big shift really mm -hmm. for me ever since the general conference made the mission of the church, making disciples. Right. The world. Uh, and we got serious about that at Hyde Park that um, that I said, yeah, wow, this, uh, I, I kind of wish I had been where I am now back mm -hmm. then. But you can't go back. And oh. we were doing the very best that we knew how to do half the time. Right. Yeah. I That, you know, there are some uh, um, churches that are driven by their numbers. Uh, they want to see that on statistical report at conference. Um, I had, we had Linda Shanko in the membership office who took no prisoners. We had clean roles. We had clean roles, but I never was interested in, even though the numbers kept rising, I was never interested in that. In fact, there was a time, uh, Jen, you were here then 
when we decided how we were going to measure our effectiveness as a congregation. Mm -hmm. We said we weren't going to count attendance or Sunday school attendance or um, a budget or anything like that. We were going to measure how many people were on in hands-on service yep. in the community beyond the church. And yep. so being a, an usher or doing something that focused on internally, that didn't count. It had to be what you were doing. Now, people had to self-report, and I don't know ever we did it very well, but our goal, I remember, our average attendance was about 2,000 at the time, and we wanted to get 50% of our average attendance to be able to be documented as um, uh, serving beyond the church. So <clears throat> if it never really worked over time, at least we were communicating. Right. That's what we need to measure, not your right. sitting in a pew. Right. And we're talking about now, you know, and, and, and our commitment is go lead your life um, as public theologians. Like you are the theologian in the public square in your life, which means you have to know your theology. You have to know your discipleship. You have to understand that relationship, but then use it in your marketplace, wherever your marketplace is, your public square to make that difference. And um, I think people are are starting to kind of hear that and understand it as we're, you know, listening to people that are making just incredible, incredible impact in their workplace and in the neighborhoods and in the community. Well, we're living in the greatest shift in the church since the printing press, I believe. Yep. Right? I agree. Everything changed after the printing press. Everything's going to change after this. And um, not that we anticipated this as well, but Jim is always... Jim was always one who engaged lay people in significant theological growth and study and thought and reflection and action. Yes. yes. So we've continued to build on that, Jim. Um, uh, I was finally able to get Handler to see the wisdom of streaming for adult theological education. And in fact, it was funny. I was at uh, a meeting up at Candler, I think a couple of years ago before COVID and Dean Love said, well, we're we're doing the Candler Foundry now, which is doing all these courses. She said, it's something Bill Barnes has been trying to get us to do for 30 years. Right. Well, it wasn't exactly 30 years, but I know it was 20 years that I just kept after them. I said, we have lay people in the church who want, need, desire, deeply a focused theological education. They don't want Sunday school type Noah and the flood. And um, so St. Luke's pioneered that with Candler that we were their test market, you know, and um, now they have a, a full blown, blown program, but um, that's going to be the key to people who aren't pew sitters engaging in theological education and challenge. Um, and I'm really grateful that we did that. But even that, you know, that that carries my name on it. But it goes back to the culture, Jim, that you established when you just referenced your um, pacifism group, you know, Absolutely. Yep. Uh, that's that's part of our that's part of our DNA that's been developing and changing with the times and technology. 
Well, and even just, you know, we, you know, we started this conversation talking about Peter's story coming in and, and, and um, Chief Justice Blackman coming in and then Candler and seminary training. And we just had Theo Ed where we had, you know, top speakers of, of theology and progressive theology come in and speak because of those connections. Mm -hmm. And so it, it wasn't, it wasn't anything new. Um, because it's it was embedded in who we have been from the very beginning um, to have provocative, challenging, like where are we learning, but also this understanding that when I listen to this person, it's affecting my discipleship. It's growing me as a disciple of Jesus Christ. Our our worldwide connection with uh, you know Belfast and and Cuba and all those places that uh, Jim was not one to say okay our. Uh, well, his taking people to South Africa right. and exposing them to issues of apartheid and, and church faithfulness and prophetic witness and all. I'll let you head off that way. You're probably going that way anyway. But So we're, yeah, Jim, how did you decide to take people to South? Talk to me about that whole movement. Because um, again, what we're doing now is so rooted in some of that work that you did. Talk about that. Sure. Because that, well, it was, it was formative for me. Um, I, uh, I went to the World Methodist Conference in Nairobi in 86, and it was a transformational experience. And I've since found out it was for a whole lot of, of other folks, too. And uh, Desmond Tutu spoke at that event, and I certainly remember him, but that's where I first heard Peter. And... Uh, was just deeply moved and really drawn into, and this was in the height of the struggle um, coming down toward the end, but in hard times. Uh, so I was really impressed um, and moved. And then fortunately, I was dean of the pastor school the next year, which meant I had some money to work with. So, so I could bring Peter over. And that's why he was first time at St. Luke's was to be a pastor school. Thank you, annual conference. Uh, and then that's, I want to go back. Um, and he invited me to come over to preach at Central and Joburg while he was in the States mm -hmm. next summer. Uh, and I said, why should I go by myself? And so I picked up a few folks to go and it was powerful and that's how that whole connection started and then it grew and other folks got involved so i think and bill has done that you've done that jan i think the 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 engagement with people i mean parenthetically i like working with strong people mm -hmm. I, i'm aware <laughs> some preachers are afraid of it mm -hmm. and i've really come to appreciate people <laughs> who have energy and strength and talent that I don't have and to learn from them. I learned everything I know about um, being a senior pastor as a staff leader from Bob McKinnon and some of the, I chose people to chair the staff parish committee at St. Luke's who were top leaders. Yeah. At, uh, so I think that that kind of an engagement, uh, it it transforms us all, and it mm -hmm. like leaven 
in the loaf. Yeah, I may have wandered a little bit there. No, no, I think that was, good. That was very good. Because I think that's the DNA again of who we are today. Still, I mean, I think the work and and the and the looking at the global issues and bringing them back home. I mean, that's what you did with Gary Mason and Belfast, um, helping us understand peace and reconciliation through that work. How did and that was that was just a how did that get started? Because the Gary Mason story is really interesting. It was kind of a you and Lynette came to you and well, it was it was no, it was um, <clears throat> you know. Jim knows, you know, Jen, too, um, when anybody comes to the conference and they need to raise money for something, they're going to send them to, to St. Luke's because they think we got deep pockets. And so I call it uh, traveling for dollars. So um, so Gary had met Ann Burkholder somehow at Candler. <clears throat> um, yeah, yeah, she. I don't even know whether she was at Candler at that point. But anyway, Ann Burk, Burkholder put together a little trip for him and made St. Luke's one of his stops. So he was there on a Sunday night and he spoke. And I guess we had about 50 people who listened to him. I didn't know him, but I went, you know, of course. And, and then he invited me to, uh, and uh, four, three other clergy to um, come uh, be his guests in Northern Ireland for a week in January of all times. And, and there was still, uh, you know, the, they hadn't had the good Friday peace Accord. I was there for that later on, but it was still, you know, a place where bombs went off. And um, I was just so, funny thing is that the last day there, I went to his office and I thought, and Jim knows this, you know too, Jen, you get there now that the light's going to come on you and they're going to ask you for the big money, you know? So before he started asking for money, I went, oh, whoa, 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 Gary, you know, you know, and I played that thing, you know, like, we don't have all this money. I don't know. It's not in the budget, da, 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 that kind of thing. And uh, he goes, no, no, Bill. He said, I'm not interested in your money lie but he said i'm not interested in your money i'm interested in develop a long-term relationship and little did we know that the long-term relationship would not will not only involve several congregations uh but um a personal relationship with gary and me and our families that is a rich one whereas his children are like our own uh, but it was really simply you know find a place where gary can go and maybe get some money Maybe can score 500 bucks at St. Luke's. So it's interesting if you look at the work of, uh, and, and it's easy for me to look back and see that what we're doing has these connections. Because if I look at the work that you just talked about with South Africa, with, with, um, with Belfast, then you come to 2020 and you come to this, you know, really racial reconciliation moment in the United States with George Floyd, you can't help but walk into that, not only because it's a biblical issue of justice, but because that's who we've been. I mean, everything that we've learned and taught from other people around the world have taught us that in this moment, we have to speak. And in this moment, we have to wade into this and, and be a voice. So as you're looking at things that have happened, um, maybe since your ministry, or as you've watched St. Luke's, how do you look back and go, they're doing this because we, we did this? Do you see any of that? Well, ripple I, effects is what we're talking I'm gonna about. I'm going to go first since I'm closest to your ministry in terms of chronology. Um, so Jim would appreciate this because he comes out of a theater background. I mean, you know, like I don't think there's any Shakespearean work he hasn't quoted in a sermon. I know it's pretty point. remarkable. It I'm really pretty, jealous. <laughs> it is absolutely remarkable. But at, at any rate, 
you know, that is not, you know, as a business major, it was, it, it was not my strong suit at all. Um, I did know the nasty parts of Canterbury Tales though, but um, <laughs> when Jen, when Jen started visioning uh, theater ministry, um, I thought, mm, well, okay, you know, uh, I didn't stop anything, but I, you know, it was just like, how's that going to work with, but as it was connected to the gaps in people's lives, as it was, as, it, as um, she stated very clearly, um, you know, in the early years, I remember at least it was 50% of the uh, people in, in the production have to be non St. Lucas. Still is. And, yes. Actually more sometimes. Mm -hmm. And then um, maybe, I don't know whether you know this, Jim, but then, then it came to the idea that, uh, very early on she would go um to rehearsals and talk to the cast about why this particular production aligned with our values which were kingdom values and then coming out of it preaching on the themes that were uh in the production so it wasn't just community theater for the sake of community theater it was theological education. It was evangelism. It was a prophetic statement in a way that people could receive a, a prophetic statement. Um, and uh, some of the things that were dealt with, well, the first one was hairspray. So there right away, you're, you're dealing with, you know, some issues of, of human expression. Uh, right. And then um, ragtime, dealing with issues of racial oppression and segregation and um so the the themes that were chosen for 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 those productions directly connected back to south africa you know connected to lgbt support um and and they still do um and uh i that is a tremendous success st luke's is known for it now the quality right and the message yeah i'm glad you use the word quality because i think that is what mm -hmm. sets it apart uh is that uh people in town know that it's really good theater it isn't just um sort of thrown together so yeah amazing stuff yeah well, and I think that's the excellence too that um has always been a thread through here. Excellence yeah. not to the point of perfectionism, but excellence as in, you know, we're gonna put our best foot forward because God calls us towards that, a call calls us towards quality so that people can relate to it and understand it. Mm -hmm. So any other ripple effects that you go, man, I'm really proud that 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 I was a part of that, that we created that ripple in our Central Florida community. Well, you know what I'm going to say. I'm I'm really grateful that that the congregation helped me start Shepherd's Hope. Absolutely. Um, I had to have my blood drawn yesterday uh, for in my annual physical, and it was at the Walgreens, the Lab Court Walgreens across the street from the church. And just conversation, the woman said, "So, what do you do?" I said, well, "I'm retired." She would retire from. I said, "Well, you know, the church across the street. I was the pastor there for a long time." Oh, oh, she said, um, and she said that would be wonderful work. And I said, "Well, you know what." I think my most wonderful work was founding Shepherd's Hope. Yeah. She started to weep. Oh my gosh. 
back before she had any insurance. She was an African-American single mother with two children. She had insurance for her children, but she didn't have insurance for herself. And she went to Shepherd's Hope and um, she had a lump in her breast and they treated her. They got her to Orlando Health, you know, just saved her life. And she's just sit, crying about it, you know, yeah. um, but 200 people uh, helped me uh, bring a vision of that uh, to reality. And uh, now there's been more than 330,000 patients for free that have been seen. But I, as I said to her, as I always say, you know, I don't care about 330,000 people. I care about you, the one person. Did you come in the door? Did they, did they give you, receive you with dignity? Did, was your name important? Did you get called to care? Oh yes. Oh yes. Oh yes. I said, well, that's what we want. It's not all the people it's one by one, which is Back to the start, 99, one by one. It's back, to, it's up to Jen when you have that one person who comes in and says, I was estranged from my church, I was rejected from my church, and now you've received me and I find a place. It's always just that one person um, mm -hmm. that, that I come back to um, mm -hmm. for whom something like that to be loving, to be cared for, uh, you can't put a price on it. You just can't put a price on it. It's true. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I can't. I mean, I, how can we improve on that? I mean, that <laughs> it does point deeply to um, to the way the spirit works in these very human, very imperfect lives of ours. Yeah. And um, yeah, I look back over all of these years now uh, in just amazement, just amazed, really, with where that journey has gone and grateful for the, the consistent stream um, that, um, that keeps flowing along. When I read through uh, your material, which really is pretty amazing. Bill <laughs> <laughs> so, and I never uh, put together a document like that, uh, and it, it's I was, you know, really, really uh, inspired, challenged. Um, it's a lot, and uh, uh, B Hags, uh, big audacious. What is it? Big hairy audacious goals, um, yep. which I, I really appreciate. But that at the center, not but and at the center is still clarity about we are here as followers of Christ to invite other people to come into the love of Christ, to make that reality in their life. Um, that's really. I, I pulled out, thinking about this, the program from the charter service. Because right. I almost remembered this. But as a mission statement, this is way too long. It's too wordy. We didn't know what we were doing. But, <laughs> but it's not bad. St. <laughs> Luke's is a community of Christians. Community is a key word. Mm -hmm seeking to answer Christ's call to discipleship and bring wholeness 
to persons and relationships through the celebration of worship. I mean, there is a hunger for tradition. Mm -hmm. St. Luke's can offer that along with right. all the contemporary great uh, praise God and at the same time uh, the resources to really maintain the strength of our worship tradition right. which continues to, to be vital there. Uh, okay, celebration of worship by fostering growth in the knowledge of Christ and Christian teaching and y'all are certainly doing that by providing for and strengthening Christian fellowship, check. By affirming and encouraging the talents and gifts of persons, check. <laughs> Talk about encouraging gifts, man. By responding to human need, wherever it may be, mm. check. check. By sharing and demonstrating the love of God revealed in Christ, check. And by being a model of ethical responsibility in a world of increasing scarcity. Ooh. Check, check, check. Check, check. <laughs> Jazz hands. <laughs> we were in the midst of the, the Carter energy crisis. Uh -huh. We were really, and in fact, little known fact, remembered fact, when Neil Schweizer did the master plan for the first unit, right? It was supposedly designed <laughs> that we could pick up the prevailing breezes coming from one end. The breeze would flow down through the center under that skylight. And then we'd open up the windows. I, I assume the fans might still be there. There were big fans on either side of the chancel in those in those closets. Yeah, yeah. Was in the cooler months of the year, we could use the natural breeze and save on all that electricity that we were burning up. Well, we tried that a time or two. It didn't work, but it was, but it was a noble effort. And that's what that increasing scarcity was. To, so anyway. to talk about DNA and its life cycle through St. Luke's, that decision by Neil Schweitzer, who, by the way, was a protege of Frank Lloyd Wright, and had finished buildings at Florida Southern. Nils had that idea that Jim told me about. That's the reason why the entire campus sits on an angle on a Popka Vineland, because that building went at that angle to catch the breeze. So then, you know, everything else was related to that angular. Oh. And then when we came to build C building, we had a big decision where we're gonna put C building straight facing a pop of island and right. have this other funny thing or would we just align it with Neil Schweitzer's <laughs> great idea and that's why the whole campus sits on an angle oh. because of that idea that was rooted in faithfulness uh to energy use I had no and idea it, yeah. and it does make it a unique place I mean I've often thought if we had built that first unit just sitting there looking out on the road the way you would expect. How boring. Would that right. But <laughs> everything is off, off at an angle. And Maybe. and the reason there's same idea was because um of the um pristine lakes, you know, and Windermere had the dirt streets that when they did the parking lot at at St. Luke's, um, there was going to be no 
long pieces of asphalt so that the rainwater could be per not run off into the lakes at some point, but percolate into the ground. So, so we've allowed people to complain about dirt and mud for 40, what, how many years has been, you know? Right. I've had people come in to me, Jim probably had them too. You know, you have a nice, what you think is a pretty effective sermon and someone goes out and says, if you don't do something about the dirt in the parking lot for my shoes, I'm never coming back. <laughs> you know? uh, and that legacy continues. No. <laughs> But I will afford to pave anything. That was the other thing. We couldn't afford to pave anything. No money. Same, same. When you have to look at that, that's another good point. You look at how much it would cost to pave everything around the church, increase the retention to do that, to what you could do with that very same money. Yes. East Winter Garden, helping to raise right. people in poverty or empowering the family groups and Zoe. I mean, it's always been a no brainer for us, hasn't it? Really? So I will, and this, we'll probably put this in another section. This is wonderful conversation because in our vision meeting, as we took all the survey responses and everything, it was our young people, um, uh, predominantly, I'm going to give a shout out to our uh, director of missions, Sonia Kazan, who grew up um, in this church and only knows this church, who was like, if you're going to reach my generation, you've got to environmental responsibility has to be labeled and named in this vision. Uh -huh. And she's the one that's getting us 2000 uh, petitions for clean water. She's the one that has worked with some of our other young people that are in business. Um, and, and we're going to be talking about this more, but to talk about how to begin to use um, solar power, but not just solar power, um, but create endowments that would then help us to, once our solar power might be paid, to maybe do that with Habitat. Anyway, there's lots of conversations happening, and it's so good to know that it is rooted in our history. Again, it's just who we've always been. Um, and and Sonia is going to be so proud of this conversation. Well, and, all, and all the oak trees in the parking lot. Right, um, right. You know? Brooks Gilmore was really behind that so that you know, we kept the temperature down, you know, and yep. uh, created shade. So, yeah. <laughs> so cool stuff that's going to happen. And it's nice to know that it started with you all and it didn't start new. It's just an evolution of who God has been from the very beginning and how St. Lucas have followed God's lead to reveal the kingdom of God and awaken disciples. So thanks guys. It was good to talk to y'all. Yep. Great thanks to see you. Great. Thank you. Great. Bye-bye.